Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. How's it going, everybody? Really excited to welcome Mike Murphy to the Philosophy Podcast. Mike is the head coach at the University of Pennsylvania, was just selected as coach of the year, by the way. Congratulations, 2019 coach of the year. Had an amazing season last year um, and um, has, is, the most, is the winningest coach in Penn history um, and has made a lot of stops along the way in, the coaching, in his coaching journey, and we're going to talk about them. But for right now, welcome to the show, Mike. Really fired up. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks for having me. appreciate it. The Philosophy Podcast is brought to you in part by the JM3 Coaches Training Program, now featuring a seven-day free trial period. And here's your host, Jamie Monroe, with more information on how you can get your hands on some of the best lacrosse content out there for free. How's it going, everybody? Thank you so much for tuning in to my podcasts. I've had so much fun doing them. I only wish that I'd started recording my lacrosse conversations like 25 or 30 years ago. Now, if you like these podcasts, you will love the content I've created in the JM3 coaches training programs and the academies. Whether you're a coach or a player or a parent, there's so much great information for you guys. I've done this content for men's lacrosse and women's lacrosse, for box lacrosse, field lacrosse, youth lacrosse. And the great news is I've created a seven-day free trial. So if you're tired of endlessly searching the internet for great content, just go to www.jm3sports.com slash free trial. And you can get access to all of the content I've created for free for seven days. Trust me, when you take a look at it, you're going to want more. Almost everybody gets hooked. All right. Enjoy the rest of the podcast. I think I, I love talking about the coaching journeys of, of, of these guys like yourself. And, but in your case, I, I know your journey pretty well. So I can't wait to start where we're going to start off. <laughs> Howard Benedict and in high school and the, the guys that you grew up playing with and how you became um, passionate about the sport of lacrosse. I can't wait to hear about that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty funny. And it's, this whole sport to me is really about people and, and that passion that we share. Uh, so funny, um, I'll, I'll give you the Reader's Digest version. I moved to New Canaan, Connecticut in seventh grade. And, and one of the first guys I meet is Andy Towers and uh, became pretty good friends with him pretty quickly. And they took me to the final four that, that year. And uh, Syracuse had a huge comeback win over Johns Hopkins. And a guy that kind of sparked the win for Syracuse was their defenseman, a guy named Darren Lawler, who happened to be from New Canaan. And so I'm thinking to myself, wow, this is pretty cool. And so we, you know, uh, became very good friends and, and a big group of us were very much into lacrosse and shared that passion and, and had some success. And, and then obviously went on to different colleges and, and played and, and that passion for, for me was so strong between the way Andy introduced it to me and the way that Coach Benedict kind of cultivated it in us that I didn't really see anything uh, that I wanted to do for a living besides the sport of lacrosse. Coach Benedict um, coached so many champions, but more than that, his players love him. And I mean, he was not like, you know, like a, a player's coach necessarily, but, <laughs> no. 
but guys love them. Can you tell us a couple of great stories about Coach Benedict, about what made him so great and, and why everybody looks back and, you know, uh, yeah. with such fond memories? Yeah, he's, he's one of the most authentic people uh, that I've ever met. Um, and at that time and place in a town like New Canaan, he was the best thing that could have happened to us as young people and, and young men, uh, you know, and the stories are endless and they're very funny and, and, and in some ways very meaningful. Um, but he just, you know, uh, for me personally, the, the one story that probably sticks with me the most is, and I probably have a skewed uh, version of it, but uh, I, I think he thought I could give him more than I was giving him. And so we were doing a ground ball drill and then he decided to put the entire team in a line and then me in the other line. So I was just doing one-on-one -on -one ground ball drills against the entire team for what seemed like 45 minutes. It was probably 15 minutes or 10, but um, I think he was trying to prove a point to me at that point that I, I could play a little harder than I was playing. And I think uh, since that day, I've prided myself on ground balls and, and just, you know, he would do whatever it took to get the most out of us. He would, you know, confront us, he would yell at us, he would construct different drills, he'd practice for five or six hours, you know, uh, he would do anything. I came off the field one time and uh, I'll come off, uh, off uh, on a shift and Andy Towers is sitting there running sprints along the sidelines. <laughs> and uh, I'm like, what did you do? And he's like, I don't know what I did, but coach wanted me to go over here and run 20 sprints. So he was running when he came off the field. So there's just dozens of stories like that, that uh, really bonded us together and, and really cultivated this passion we have for lacrosse. Such a great guy. I mean, I got to know him, you know, when we were all assistant coaches and he used to run his new Canaan lacrosse camp. And that was so much fun. Such great memories. Uh, such a great guy. Um, so then you um, went off to Duke and played for Coach Pressler and sort of in the beginning of his tenure. Were you recruited by Coach Pressler too, or did he come in when you were there? He came in my senior year. So uh, the first three years we had Tony Cullen and then the, the last, year, last year we had Coach Pressler. Tell me about your Duke experience. Uh, it was great, you know, uh, thankful to this day that they took a chance on me and, you know, uh, got me into school there and had lifelong friends that I still stay in touch with and, and things. Uh, you know, the senior year was definitely different when Coach Busser showed up. Um, it became a little more intense, a little more serious, which, which I loved as somebody that is pretty into the sport and, and things. So I think the school started to take it more seriously and they ramped up the investment they made in, into the program to uh, obviously where it is today. So uh, I loved it and, uh, and cherished the memories. Very cool. So 1991, you graduate from Duke. 1992, you get the Brown job. And my brother was a senior on that team. And that's really where I got to know you out of the gate was coming back and visiting. I was coaching at Yale at the time. And I would always come back and hang out with my brother and Towers and all those guys. I mean, just a great crew of guys. And you got to work for Dom and with Pete um, and Hoops, right? Was Hoops there too? Yep. No, no, it was me, it was Dom, Pete, and, and me, and then Ted Spencer was actually our, uh, our volunteer. Yeah, I took Hoops' uh, job because he had to go to the family business. That's right, 91 was his last year. So um, tell us about your Brown experience. Oh, it was, uh, I made $3,000 for the year. Um, it was one of, the best, one of the best years of my life. Uh, had two great roommates that I still stay in touch with, um, guys that played soccer there. Uh, and, you know, I really learned how to be a coach, um, how to be professional from Dom and, and really figure out what this profession is, uh, is all about. Made some, some really good friends, you know, guys that I coach, like your brother and Struby and, and other guys that got into coaching and, and just other people in the department. Uh, it was really, really a fantastic year and, and obviously built a relationship with, with Dom that 
that, uh, you know, still going strong today. So it was, uh, it was awesome. We had a good year, you know, Darren Lowe was the player of the year, we went to the quarterfinals and, and stuff. Uh, so it was, it was fantastic. I look at, look back at that year um, with a lot of fond memories. Yeah, that was, that was a good year for the Ivy league. Um, we were, uh, Yale was pretty good that year too. It was Brown and Yale and Princeton yep. was the national champions. And yeah. Yeah. That's a pretty sick year in the Ivy league. Um, yeah, good doubt. So then Dom takes the Virginia job and brings you along and what, what a shot in the arm that was. How fun was that? Oh, it was great. You know, uh, and just, you know, randomly, uh, my mother lives in, lives in Charlottesville. Lived, she just moved there then. And so I got a chance to be around her. My father passed away when I was 16. So it was nice for me to be near my mom at that point in, in, in our lives and stuff. And, and a place that uh, I'd competed against when I was, when I was at Duke and I had been recruited by Virginia a little bit and, and stuff. So just a place where you, you felt like you can go and, and really compete for a, a national championship. So spent five years there and met my wife there. It was uh it was a great, great uh, experience. You guys had some awesome teams. Uh, went to the final in 94, 95, 96, came up short, but we're such a great team. So much fun. Tell us a couple stories about that. I mean, I know there's a lot of great players, but that attack unit with Watson, Whiteley, Dougie Knight, uh, yeah. just like maybe as, gr as great of an attack unit ever. Any great uh, stories on those guys and how exciting it was to play that brand of lacrosse? Yeah, it was, it was so much fun. I think it was a perfect storm of talent and coaching. Um, you know, I, I think for Dom to, you know, kind of let Mark go and, and coach those guys the way he did and for Mark to be, you know, creative enough and structured enough that they had to play within a little bit of a system, but recognizing that he had some tremendous talent with, you know, uh, with that attack group. And we had some very good middies as well, yeah. guys like Greg Trainer and, yeah. and Chris Triggs and others. So, um, you know, I, I remember, uh, you know, at one point they started throwing bounce passes and I don't know why it hasn't come back because more teams are playing on turf. Like, it's an effective pass. You know, you can't knock down a bounce pass. I've never seen one get picked off yet. Um, and so, you know, there were times where Doug would just shake his stick down by the, down by his left foot and Watson would throw the ball across crease to a stick, like a high to low feed. And they would throw bounce passes through people's legs on fast breaks. And, and it was remarkable. I mean, I think the pinnacle of that was probably that 22, 21 game in, in uh, 97, which was after we lost Whiteley, but it was, uh, Watson Knight and, and Drew McKnight, 22-21. Uh, it was just like, it was like watching Star Wars with lacrosse sticks. It was, uh, it was incredible. And I think Casey Powell had like seven and six in that game or something. I, I, yeah, I don't even think that's an exaggeration. I think that's exactly what it was. And I remember like the defining moment of that game for me is we came down, we won a, a face-off. Jason Harb was a freshman. I think he took like all 46 face-offs and won like 30 of them. He was incredible. A uh, freshman from, from up there. He wins one forward. He gives it to Watson, who throws it behind his back to McKnight, who dives across the crease, shoots it behind his back, and hits the crossbar and goes out outside the restraining box. Who's there but the Grim Reaper, Casey Powell. He picks the ball up. He goes running down the field, and Tommy Smith goes and just hanging all over him, and he shoots one behind his back into the low corner from like 10 yards out. And we're like, oh, boy, this, is, this might not be our day. Unbelievable. Hammer to the full sprint. Yeah, dead I'm still one of the greatest plays of all time, right there. No doubt. In one of the greatest games of all time. I mean, yeah, God, what a what a you know, I mean it was I'm sure it was no fun losing it, but man, being a part of that and looking back at that level of play, I mean it was so sick. Yeah. Uh, and so then you I can't I, I I knew you coached at Ridgefield and you got into like this into sales. And what I really remember is that one of your sales territories was Denver. And when I was first 
a head coach at the University of Denver, you'd come yeah. out and check out some practices. And yeah. honestly, I don't know if I told you this, but the, the deep zone ride you taught me on oh. the field at the University of Denver in probably 2000 or 99, 2000, probably 2000, yeah. um, really became a staple for a lot of the things that I kind of learned, which is kind of really? funny. Yeah. Cool. I remember those visit visits vividly. I loved going out there. So I left Virginia after the 97 season. I went to New York and was doing sports marketing and working for, you know, NFL properties and some different uh, agencies up there. But I stayed involved. I coached at New Canaan High School with Coach Benedict and New York Athletic Club and ultimately Ridgefield High School in the spring of 2000. But I stayed connected to the college guys, you know, uh, especially you and Brash and a couple other guys. I would go out there and watch you guys practice and, and, and catch up with you guys and, and obviously Dom at Virginia and some other places. So um, that was useful to me in my coaching journey because it allowed me to try some different non-traditional things going back to the high school level, certainly as an assistant uh, at the defensive end where I was yeah. uh, kind of coordinating things. But it also gave me, I think, a unique perspective from a business standpoint, learning how to use PowerPoint and you know conduct meetings and write memos and things that we actually have to do in coaching, but we don't generally have an orientation for that part of it so especially you know, in the uh, 90s yeah you know uh you know <laughs> figuring out how to send an email was, was hard <laughs> enough for me so it was a good experience and, and i think the biggest thing it did for me was make me realize how much i love coaching and, and being in this kind of all day every day and waking up with a purpose so when uh mark van arsdale called me in in may of 2000 to to come back to penn or come to penn and, and be his defensive coordinator um, it was about a month before we got married, but uh, kind of jumped at the opportunity and things kind of worked out. And I've been living in Philadelphia for, I guess, 19 and a half years since then. So you're at Penn as, as, as Mark Van Arsdale's assistant. Now he just, everyone knows you referred to him as Mark Van before, but he was the offensive coordinator for a lot of years with Dom through the 90s. Right. Um, and actually went back to be the offensive coordinator and is now currently the offensive coordinator at Loyola. Um, but uh, how was that experience working for Mark Van? I mean, you knew him so well. Was it was there yeah. was it very different or pretty much just the same? Uh, pretty similar, honestly. You know, he was the head coach and and I was his assistant. So, but it was it was remarkably comfortable. And he's one of my best friends in coaching to this day. Um, and he's also probably the smartest guy I know. And and so being able to learn from him, uh, having come back into this and and being kind of rededicated to the profession and and being in this for the long haul. Um, it was just great. He's, he's as nice a guy as you're going to meet and as smart a guy as you're going to meet. And just the way he thinks about the game. And I've learned so much of what I do from him, you know, I think somewhat intentionally and somewhat residually. Uh, mm -hmm. It was just, a, it was a fun year to, to be coaching and, and be with him and stuff. And we were pretty good. We weren't great. I think we were five and nine. But at that point, he was still really rebuilding the Penn program from, it was, you know, I think they were over in the league in the mid nineties for a while. So yeah. they were trying to, to build it back up. And I think he gets a little bit of credit. He and Terry Corcoran and those guys for where we are now. For sure. And then, so your next stop was Haverford. Nope. Uh, so one year with Mark Van Arsdale and then one year uh, for Matt Hogan, who came in, got the job, um, kept me and then hired Joe Amplo. So Joe and I are good friends to this day um, from the eight months we spent together here at Penn, which is great. We still, uh, have a lot of laughs about that. And then um, seven years at Haverford College. So two years at Penn, seven years at Haverford College, and, and then back to Penn in the summer of 2009. Awesome. Well, you've really, uh, it's been a great run. You've had some awesome mentors. You've gotten a chance to coach at so many different levels, whether it be high school, division one, division three, and now back in the Ivy League at Penn. And you guys are coming off um, just an awesome year. I mean, 
you guys had such a tough schedule and you always do. I mean, every single year you guys have such a gauntlet yeah. um, with your out of conference stuff. And obviously the Ivy league is hard enough. Um, so, so to start as you did last year and then to go on, you know, what was it? A 10 game winning streak? Yeah. 12, I think. 12 game winning streak yeah. after going 0 and three in the beginning. Yeah. yeah. Um, and just watching you guys get better and better and better. Um, what a special group. Talk about like what the leadership and stuff is like on that team and what made it special. Yeah. Great question, Jamie. Uh, I think the number one reason we did what we did last year and went on that run was because of the seniors. We had 10 guys and uh, it was as good a group um, of, you know, the total package, student, athlete, player, leader, commitment, all the things that we care about. Uh, that group of 10 guys was as good a group as I've been around since I got to Duke in, in 1987. Um, they just were, were all in on everything we were doing. Um, they had a lot to say about a lot of things we did. We collaborated on a lot of different decisions. Um, a very good um, group of complementary skills and leaders. You know, uh, Simon Mathias was a captain and a little more corporate um, and a little more practical and a little bit more level-headed. And Tyler Dunn was more the emotional leader and fiery and, and uh, you know, uh, kind of emotional on the field and would make physical plays and you know uh, Reed Junkin was always very steady in the goal uh, Joe Lachardi was kind of the glue in the middle of the field even though Tyler Dunn was more of a of an alpha physically uh, yeah. Joe Lachardi was great at both ends of the field uh, Alex Rosner you know really kind of into the work part of it and bringing guys out to the field and extra lifts and all that uh, Noah Lehman was a great story starting defenseman for us had torn his ACL two times and come back from that so uh, kind of resiliency and grit that he brought. It was just a, a unique group of guys and personalities and, and things that came together to, to really kind of get this thing on track and, and get us to the next level. Yeah, it was. It was such a great run. And then you had a lot of, you know, younger players chipping in. I mean, um, Sam Hanley is, it's kind of funny. His dad, I met, he called me up randomly about six or seven years ago and was like, hey, uh, I've heard a lot about 3D lacrosse and uh, we want to start 3D in, in Portland. I can I can pretty much deliver, you know, four teams to you. And, um, you know, my son's <laughs> 2018, and I was like, sounds good. And then that's how 3D started in Portland, Oregon, oh. uh, because of uh, J.B. Hanley, great guy. And his son, um, you know, it was funny because he was, he was always really skilled with good hands and good size, um, but he was a hoop player that really understands. And we were talking about this before our call. He's yeah. got an athletic fluency because of basketball probably that goes along with his physical capabilities and his skill that just makes him pretty special in what he's able to kind of do. Yeah, no doubt. And he is unique. Um, obviously being six, five helps and he's mm -hmm. pretty athletic, but his greatest asset, uh, and I just met with him earlier today. Uh, you know, I think his greatest asset is his fluency and his IQ and his vision and understanding of the game and, and things like that. Uh, you know, there aren't a lot of guys that are 6'5 and, and can shoot the ball with both hands and run, but really the thing that separates him is his understanding and his yeah. vision. And his feel. Can, yeah, his feel for the game. Yeah, for sure. It was a shame that you guys um, had to run into Yale in that quarterfinals. I felt like uh, that would have been a really good championship matchup and still one of the best games I've ever seen. Again, I'm sure you were kind of sad to be on the losing end of that thing, but, man, what a great game. What a great season. You guys played so tough, you know, as well as so skilled and so smart. Yeah. Um, unbelievable. Thanks. And I'm sure you got some big plans for this year. And how are you, you know, trying to 
it doesn't it doesn't just you know uh, flow from one year to the next. It's no. starting over again, right? And yeah. uh, how are you doing that with trying to build up that culture again and, and empower leadership and, and and foster leadership? Yeah, a great question, Jamie. And, and there's a lot of last year we're trying to carry over, but we're not trying to replicate it. You know, and we talked in the beginning of the school year about not defending any sort of championship and, and going out and attacking the 2020 season. Um, and we, we're different. We're a different group. Simon Mathias um, was our kind of lead attackman and he's the all time leading scorer in the history of Pound Cross. And so that's a pretty big hole to fill and we don't have him anymore. Um, but we have some other guys, you know, Dylan Gergar was a freshman last year and he's coming on strong. We have some other younger guys and different guys, you know, uh, at both ends of the field and we're going to be a little different, you know, we're not going to have Tyler Dunn, um, but this kid, Mitch Bartolo, is a junior, and he's really stepped up, and he's got a physical presence. So, you know, we'll continue to play the way we did last year, stylistically, more or less, in terms of pace and and physicality and speed and, and things that we try to emphasize, uh, toughness. But we'll do it with some different leaders and some different people. And, you know, on defense, we'll probably uh, go about things a little bit differently, too, uh, you know, having lost some of the guys we lost and, and, and things, and a new goalie. So... Um, it will not be a cookie cutter, a replication of, of 2019, but we'll certainly want to build on a lot of things we did culturally in terms mm-hmm. of collaborating and, and working hard and things like that. How, give me some examples on how you collaborate. Yeah, we have a leadership council. Um, we actually met today, uh, ironically, um, just talking about ways, you know, how, you know, when do you guys want to practice? Would you rather practice before we lift or after we lift? You know, uh, when, when do you guys want to leave for away games? Do you want to practice here at home before we leave? And, or do you want to leave earlier and practice at the other location? Team rules, things like that. We do a lot of, of collaborating with both the senior class and the leadership council that I think has really helped our guys understand what we're doing from a staff standpoint and also help our staff understand where they're coming from in terms of their desires and wants. When you think about team rules, and you think about you know commitment to um, off you know off field commitment um, in specifically not partying you know how do you attack that one I mean that's so so hard because you know you can make all the rules you want but you know it's the, it's the kids that have to want to do it and right. they have to do it they have to execute it but it's kind of a tough predicament for a coach because you got to have some kind of rules because right. you, gotta, you know so what, what, how do you attack that. Yeah, it's very complicated. Um, and I think number one, you recruit, recruit your culture. And so we make sure we recruit good kids as best we can from good families and because they're going to represent us in everything they do, a home over break and in, in a bar or, you know, in the classroom and everywhere in between. Um, and then, you know, we try to keep this very simple. What we do on the field, what we do off the field, we have one team rule and that's do the right thing the right way. Now within that, we have a, a number of policies and guidelines and, and the drinking thing you know, for us and, and the leadership council sets it, it's, we basically don't, they're not going to drink on uh, any night when we have a lacrosse activity the next day. So I pretty much limit them to once a week and they need to own that. And we've told them that like, listen, we're not going to be there on a Thursday night when guys thinking about going out or not going out and you guys need to make sure you're enforcing that and know where the line is. Does it apply to a manager? Does it hurt? Does it apply to a hurt player? You know, on down the line. So we've had the conversations and our guys understand that this is their team more than it is our team, especially the seniors, and and they need to uh, kind of own that part of it and enforce it. I mean, there's no question that you know you can teams can part of themselves out of contention, and they cannot part of themselves into better contention by having mm-hmm. that discipline. And man, it's just you never look back and think of wow that. Wednesday night party was so much fun. You look back right. and say winning games and yeah. having that camaraderie is the yep. 
Yeah, and you and I know that from hindsight. And the hard part is conveying that to these guys in a way that they can appreciate it before the, the season starts and, and live by that over the course of the year and, and hope and trust that that sacrifice is worth it. No doubt. But I will say this, kids are um, way more disciplined uh, than they were back in the 80s. <laughs> way more, you know? Uh, so, and we actually like, should really just like chalk that up to like the kids these days are just such better kids. Than right? <laughs> and they have so much more pressure. Like I don't know how it they is. do it. It's remarkable. It is. It, is. Yeah. it truly is. I mean, you know, how much pressure they have and, 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 and the fact that everything's documented. Is yeah, everything. Yeah, like the forms they fill out from compliance to the social media is all, you know, everything's documented now. You can't hide from anything. So you, you are what you are. And if you're not doing the right thing, then it's going to catch up to you. In 1987, if the phone rang, I'd just be like, I'm not here. <laughs> exactly. You know? Is that? Is that? The Philocrosophy podcast is made possible in part by the JM3 video assessment tool. There's no question that video is critical to player development. One way or another, your son or daughter must utilize video to learn their game and the game. To learn more, see video testimonials, or register, go to www.jm3sports.com forward slash video right now. All right, switching gears. Um, you sort of talked a little bit about this, but the way you guys play stylistically, um, how do you describe that? We talk about playing with pace. Um, and for us, that means the ball and bodies are moving rapidly. Um, we don't measure that with a certain number of possessions or a certain number of shots. Um, uh, because I don't think that necessarily leads to winning as much as, um, space and pace. Now at the end of the day, it's, it's a very simple game. Uh, we are trying to score more goals than the other team. And so we either have the ball and are trying to score or we're trying to get the ball back, whether it's a face-off, a clear, playing defense, and, and get the ball down the field. So we try to keep that part of it as simple as we can and give them basic guidelines for how spaced we want to be when we have the ball. Um, and then we want to get the ball to and get there rapidly when we're playing offense. And obviously, you know, what we do within the structure of the offense will vary but by and large, the space and pace should not vary. We should always stay spaced relative to our man covering us and each other, and the ball should move rapidly. How do you describe the space? Um, we define it as the space from you to your defender, um, obviously on and off ball. And then we also define it as our distance from each other or really angle. And so if it's a five-man perimeter, that's 72 degrees on average, not that we talk about degrees of, of a circle. Um, but they just need to understand that need to, they need to be far enough apart. Uh, and the golden rule is that you cannot let one defender cover two guys. Mm -hmm. As soon as our spacing allows that to happen, it's bad spacing. So that's the way we talk about it. But in theory, the guys around the perimeter want to be somewhat equidistant from each other. That makes it harder for one defender to play two in that kind of adjacent heads position. You don't want to let that guy get off the hook. Part of it is you have to be close enough to your man. And I think that's part of the part of spacing that people, yes. it's a little counterintuitive, is that they think about spreading out when really yeah. it's probably the opposite. Yeah, we, there's a uh, concept that Dave Cottle taught me called play your man. And so I believe that if you're on the perimeter, you need to be probably three to seven yards away from your man. And if you're about to catch the ball, you want to be at least three so you're not getting checked and you can square up. But if you're two passes away, you can't be more than seven or eight yards away from them because then you're not engaged in part of the offense. And it's a, it's a really a feel that those guys have to, to get. And how many times you watch film and you can see five offensive players, um, but the guy furthest from the ball is in the parking lot. 
You know, he's either right. four right. behind the cage or five yards outside the box. He can't score a goal. So it's important that we have all six guys engaged far enough from their man that they can play offense, but not so close that they're getting checked. I've been thinking about a concept lately. I've been watching a lot of film and, and evaluating a lot of players and trying to teach players in a more remote circumstance through film. Huh. One of the, I'm curious about your opinion on this, but I've been thinking a lot about whether it's on ball or off ball, one of the most important things a good offensive player can do is actually play as close to his man as possible. Right. Yeah, especially off ball. Like, if, it depends on where you are. Um, and so if you're trying to create space, like at the end of the day, this, the offense is about space. And so if you're trying to create space inside to cut into, you want to be right next to your man, right. ideally in a place that's not where you want to catch the ball. So that opening that you've created on the crease, you can step to it kind of away from your man. So it all depends on the timing of things. You know it what I mean? does. And there's, there's obviously, you know, lots of circumstances. But at the end of the day, the more space between you and your man, the more cushion they have. So if you want to try to beat them or cut on them or beat them one-on-one -on -one with a dodge, right. um, you have to make that move. You know, if you make it from really far away, everybody can see it coming, including right. the rest of the defense. And exactly. You can't get more, close, more closely to him. And it, it's kind of like, you know, like, like a basketball player. They don't long dodge. No. They get really close. Yeah. Or they back you in or they post you up. And, and there's opportunities to have that comfort level. Yeah. Of being really tight to your man on and off the ball is just a simple, interesting. Yeah. I was curious about your opinion. Yeah. Like on ball, I agree with you. And it depends on the guy. You know, like, sure. you know, Sam Hanley's lucky because he can beat somebody physically and he can also beat them with speed or quickness. Yep. You know, uh, but at the end of the day, if you think about the definition of beating your man, it's getting by his top hand, his top foot. And you have to be at some point close to his top hand and his top foot to get by that. Right. And once you get that leverage past his, his top hand, then you've created that scoring opportunity and they have to either slide to you or trust you're going to miss a shot. And there's so, a yeah. difference between running by your man and getting by your man. And honestly, that, you know, uh, they're both great. I mean, listen, we'd all love to have people that can run by people, but it's a little easier to slide to. And when you're yeah. Jeff Teat and you're kind of just getting by people, it's right. like, how the heck did he do that? Um, yeah. they, you know, when their head's up and they're soaking – as well as initiating some physicality, you know, it's no doubt. It's, and that's what makes he's unique because he's so creative. He can just give you a little chicken wing or yeah. you know, dead shoulder, and then all of a sudden he's got leverage, and you don't want to slide to him because he's going to pick you apart on the backside. But if he's inside eight yards or eleven yards, the ball's going in the goal. Uh, and he never runs by anybody, but he right. creates a lot of offense. Yeah. Now you, I remember hearing you say this a long time ago. And you just alluded to it about not being, not allowing you know uh, a defender to cover two. Right. And on the flip side, I, I've, I've heard you say, like, if you're a good off-ball defender, you're always going to be covering at least a guy and a half. Yeah. Yep. Is that, is that, are you still like, you know, have you, do you stick to that or is it, has that changed and evolved into something different? Yeah, no, I still believe it. And again, it's all situational. Yeah. And so like, if you're playing defense on a crease and you're trying to play a guy and a half, uh, you better make sure that the guy you're covering initially is not open on the crease. Mm -hmm. So there's a, there's a, right. I guess a gray area between sure. playing man to man, the way we're talking about, and playing a zone. But in reality, if you can play a guy and a half or two guys, you don't have to slide too much. You're not creating offense in, mm -hmm. a, in a traditional sense for the offense when you're on defense. Yeah, that's the whole key. The closer your man is to the ball, you know, the closer you have to be to your man and vice versa. Yeah, exactly. Now, you guys play pretty up and down. You, are you guys still playing two-way middies, or are you guys playing O middies and D middies? How does that work? Yep, we play. Uh, we play all of them. You know, uh, so we try to keep a two-way guy on the field as much as we can. Um, we have three or four of them that we have confidence in. 
So that will allow us to, to try to eliminate some transition for the other team getting in because that guy's not going to sub. Um, so we'll generally play on offense, a two-way midi, and then two offensive middies. And then so I'm when you say two-way midi, you mean that there was a guy who was just on defense who's staying yep. on offense Correct. as opposed to a guy that can get back on defense. Correct. Correct. Those, the two-way guys are equally adept at both ends. They get reps in practice every day at both ends. They understand how we, how we clear, how we ride. Some for a freshman to do that. So none of those guys are really freshmen because they haven't absorbed everything we yeah. do in, in all five phases. Um, but by and large, they can, they can do everything, and, and they're guys that we trust equally at both ends of the field. Got it. Um, so I, I know that last year you guys had some success playing some zone, and I know that we've talked about zone defense a lot over the years. Um, what, how do you characterize the zone? Are you still running the zone that I learned from you like 10 or 15 years ago? Yeah, or no, it's How have you kind of uh, evolved? It's different now. That, that one was more of like a 2-2 zone right. that would be a matchup and morph. And this one is really more of just a traditional 3-3 zone um, mm-hmm. with the patient support. And it's simpler, and our guys understand it. And, and Casey Aketa, our defensive coordinator, does a great job of, of teaching it. And, and we, we, you know, it kind of kind of comes and goes. And, you know, I think it was a big part of us winning the Ivy tournament yeah. game yeah. Um, because Yale hadn't seen us do it in a while. And, and, we, and I give our guys credit. We literally didn't work on it all week or for a month, really. And then we did it at the walkthrough at Manhasset High School on Long Island on a Saturday. And... They executed it pretty well on uh, on Sunday. It's pretty amazing, actually, that a, a good defense can actually go ahead and play pretty good zone too, right? I mean, it's all about yeah. just being good communicators. And if your defense isn't very good, a zone probably isn't going to be a, a right. great help. Right. Exactly. You know. Uh, and honestly, like I think a lot of teams overreact to zones. You know, uh, they start doing something totally different and 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 slow down. You know, uh, it is what it is. It's the same guys. They're playing areas instead of men, but it's a lot of the same principles. Yeah, that's awesome. Now, talk to me a little bit about your um, player development philosophies and, and how that's kind of uh, evolved over your years at Penn. Yeah, um, you know, everybody's different. And I think part of it's what you were saying before, uh, the, the fluency piece. We yeah. want our guys to be complete players instead of, you know, guys with very specific siloed skills that, that they can't use in combination or, or with each other. Um, so we, we do a little bit less of, you know, 45 minutes of shooting. And we do a little bit more of dynamic drills that don't necessarily have um, like a, a set routine to it. Like we'll do a lot of like, you know, different types of three on twos and ground balls in them and, and things like that. Uh, where guys are just, you know, kind of interpreting situations and getting better at their decision-making. Once they get to us, yeah. you'd think that they have a pretty good grasp on the basic skill sets of passing, catching, shooting, and, and, uh, and ground balls. So we want to see how they use them in different combinations and, and, if we're trying to get better at pace, then we'll do a drill where they have to move the ball more quickly or if we're trying to work on certain things defensively, you know, uh, we'll do certain things to, to enforce that in the drill. How much will you take – you know, how much did Simon Mathias get better? I know I'm sure he got a lot better from the time – I mean, I remember him, you know, when he was a freshman and trying out for the U15 and stud athlete, slasher, lefty. But, man, he just added so much repertoire to his game. How much do you credit – you know, your, your coaches and offensive coordinators and how much do you credit him for just, you know, figuring it out on his own because that is yeah. part of it. Yeah, no doubt. And I think it's both of those things, all of those things, you know, uh, he's, I wouldn't say he's cerebral, but he's pretty thoughtful. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think he was constantly um, digesting ways to evolve his game. You know, uh, like you watch him each of those four years and he was pretty different. 
the shots he would take, the question marks versus rocker steps and the angles he would dodge from and, and things like that. He really did evolve. Uh, and I think all those guys, you know, get credit. Pat Myers, um, the first three years he was here and Mike Abbott the last year. And, and he just was constantly looking to get better. He would learn a lot from those guys. But you could also see his wheels were always turning. He would look at different ways to do things. And, like, I would throw throw ideas at him once in a while. And he was very receptive to those. And you could tell he would, like, think about it and try to go out and use it and, and might tweak the suggestion. But he was constantly developing his game. And he made, a, he made great strides. He's one of the most consistent and complete lacrosse players I've ever been around in, yeah. in all my time. Yeah, really impressive player. So fun to watch. Um, what about on the defensive side of the ball? Um, you know, one and specifically, are you a V hold or cross check hole guy? Um, I am a cross check guy. Uh, a couple of years ago, we were having all our defensemen switch hands um, in the fall, at least. And then what they would want to do later on was was really up to them. Uh, you know, I see the merit in both, and it's almost like we were talking about before. There's no wrong way to do a lot of these right. things. Yeah. Um, it's really a, a comfort level for the kids. And I think in some ways it's a matchup, you know, you've got a guy that's, you know, uh, a certain type of player, you want to play more with your hands and another guy is a different type of player. You want to play him a little more with your stick and a V hold. So, mm-hmm. um, I think to, to each his own in some respect that way. Right. I had, I did a really cool webinar with Matt Landis. Oh, wow. And we did, we went over five matchups, really uh, matchups against Jordan Wolf. Matt Rambo, um, Connor Fields, Cuccinello, and Lyle Thompson. Wow. And it was so cool to kind of watch him, you know, use both, you know. Um, yeah. How because sometimes, you know, you think about lead poke with your stick out. Yeah. But, you know, he, when he's, he's not doing that unless he's approaching a shooter, right? He, otherwise, he's kind of just moving his feet and he's getting his cross check. And he ends yeah. up using his V-hold right on right. But not always. And it was just very, very interesting to kind of look yeah. at why he did what he did and all the adjustments. And wow. I figured you'd be interested. Yeah. I would love to. Was that a podcast or one of the uh it was a video videos? it was a video webinar. Um I did another one by the way with um Eddie Glazner and we went really? over every pretty much every significant possession of that twenty fifteen semifinal game. No way. Heartbreaking loss Notre Dame suffered against D- Denver, but it was just such great lacrosse and man. Wow. To like get all that off-ball stuff. That's pretty cool. Communication. But that brings me to that next point, which is talk to me about defensive, you know, this, this defensive fluency and, and how that ties into your communication and positioning and how you play. Yeah. Um, so, like, just take a step back. Look at this from 10,000 feet. Um, we, when we evaluate recruits and then develop our own players, we try to do it in three areas, physical, technical, and tactical. Physical is your body, speed and power and stamina. Uh, technical is anything they do by themselves on a lacrosse field, which is stick work as well as one-on-one and things like that. And then the tactical is anything they do with a teammate. So their ability to coordinate um, with a teammate on offense or, or on defense. So you know, on defense, we're trying to develop these guys <clears throat> in all three areas. Now, it's great if you've got six alphas and you don't have to slide, but that's hard to do. And, and that was more effective 10 or 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but now when teams on offense see that, they're just going to pick the crap out of you. And so you, yeah. you're going to have to be able to switch. And yeah, at some point, you're going to have to slide. Um, and so for us, and again, it's a little bit like no wrong answer. Like, you know, we're basically a crease-sliding team, and we're ball-side heavy, like, like most teams. Sure. But the, the, the key to that 
that I've started to realize more in the last couple of years is the connectivity. You know, um, like the ball is very important. So, you know, the, the guys that have the best instincts and the highest IQ on defense are generally the ones that always know, always, 100% of the time, where the ball is and where the man is at the same time. And, and if you're good, you know, depending on where you are relative to the ball, off the ball, you can see them both with the ball, you man triangle. But that isn't always the case. If you're on the crease, you need to feel your guy with your stick and see the ball or things like that. Um, and they are constantly, like every half second, recalibrating their relationship to their man in the ball. And the guys that do that well are always in the right spot. And defense is so much about alignment. Like mm -hmm. we're trying to take away shots in that little area in front of the cage. And if you think about how little that area is and that you have six guys to defend it, they should never score. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or at least get in there. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, uh, and every shot would be from 15 or, or, or out. And so I think the best guys are the ones that have a, you know, what commander's intent, like just, we're trying to get a stop here. We're not so worried if the wrong guy slides sometimes or the wrong guy fills. At the end of the day, let's get a stop. And so sometimes it's not going to always go as we scripted it, where we slide from or how we recover. But at the end of the day, we have to have six guys in a goalie committed to taking away shots in that area of the field. And so the guys that understand the big picture of that and can, can you know, adapt on the fly, so to speak, are generally the best defenders. And if you can have a guy that can cover and do that and clear the ball, that's, that might be a first-team All-American. Yeah. I mean, that the, uh, the word fluency – applies so much to defense because you have to be able to um, recognize what's happening on the ball while you're trying to calibrate where you are, where your man is. And, and by the way, the where you are piece is really important because it's not just ball you man, it's also ball you man and how, how far wide am I, how close to the yeah. net am I, orientation is so huge. And then it's like, okay, is this person being run by what's the matchup? Is it a left right. or righty? Was it a long approach? Was it a skip pass? Exactly. You know, all of these things are going exactly. through your head and every two seconds, there's a new one of those to do. Yeah. And you can't, like you said, the fluency part is so important because you can't like write up on a piece of paper, how we're going to respond defensively to all those things. Right. Like, by the defense. Different every time. Yeah. And that's where the fluency, like you just have to be a good lacrosse player towards your understanding. All right. We're trying to take away shots in this area. You guys have to, you know, figure out different ways to do that within the context of our, you know, crease sliding defense, you know, and who's, who really gets this is Matt McMahon, who played for us back in, in 2015 yeah. and, and uh, plays in the PLL now, like he came back and watched the practice and I was talking to him and, and uh, we had our base man and we had our zone and uh, then we had something, you know, we just called it May Day at the time and it's just basketball defense, you know, it's like, and he's like, reflecting back on that thinking well, that was really effective that's kind of what we do you know in the in the pll like you know we don't practice so we right. kind of have to just be on the same page and and talk through everything there's a yeah. lot of merit to that yeah really interesting well i want to turn the page um to the last topic which is recruiting um and ask you well while we're, while we're talking about defense and we're talking about you know all these you know the physical the the, the skill and technical and tactical how do you evaluate um, players when you're looking at defensemen on those three categories? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, they come in different shapes and sizes. Uh, I think the most important thing um, for a defenseman is feet. You know, if they have good feet, um, depending on how, how big they are, they can usually cover, you know. Uh, and I don't know, you know, I feel lucky having worked for Dom and with Mark for as long as I did. So I probably picked up some things from them and didn't even know it in terms of the evaluation part. 
but the two most important body parts by far are feet and hips. And if a guy has the feet and hips, they can usually develop the rest. Um, and like you were saying, like we don't have to defend guys 25, 30 yards from the cage. And so your ability to defend guys in close quarters is really important, you know, uh, and it depends on what you want to do defensively and things like that. But if, if a guy has the ability to move his feet, which is partly an RPM issue and, and partly a, a foot in the ground power issue, and you have the ability to swing your hips quickly and change directions and, and accelerate right off the change, you're going to be generally in position physically with regard to the ball and the goal uh, most of the time. Part of it, you know, it's definitely the part of the RPM is part of the foot in the ground. There's no question about it, but there's something about some guys just don't get shook. Yeah. And how do you classify that? You know what I mean? Like there's guys that can test out, you know, they yeah. can jump 34 inches and yep. they got great pro agility scores and they're six, three, but like you give them one little twitch in there. Yeah. You know. Well, that's where our, um, our strength coach differentiates between agility and change of direction. Agility is reactive. And yeah. so we do a lot of our training with another athlete, you know, uh, in terms of our speed development, we don't just mindlessly run from one line to the next. We'll do some of that. Yep. Um, but he also does a lot of it that is reactive and, and, you know, uh, there's some science to it and I understand a little bit in some classes I took when I was at Virginia. Yep. Um, and there's something called a psychological refractory period. So if you fake me one way and then you move in the other direction, um, the psychological refractory period is the amount of time it takes me to digest your fake and then respond to your actual move. And so the guys that process that information quickly and kind of keep us, you know, keep their, their eyes on your hips, so to speak, and stay focused on the right thing mm -hmm. are the ones who generally are going to be in position the best, regardless of their measurable speed. It's the guys that can react to you and understand your body language. And when I mean, there's a higher level of thinking to it that I couldn't even explain to you, yeah. but that these guys like, I think they're great athletes that are better suited for offense than for defense. They don't always yeah. have the skills, but there are people that are better just running by somebody than mm -hmm. they are defending. And I always felt like for me, I was pretty athletic, but I was much more athletic on defense than I was on offense for whatever reason. Right. So you got, you got feet, you got off, you know, feet and coverability, hips, and then you've got the off ball piece. Um, Obviously, you're going to be playing off the ball, you know, whatever, 85% of the time, maybe more, maybe a little less, but it's not most of the time you're off the ball. Yeah. Um, and the worst goals, you know, are probably the ones given up when they were just, they were, they were given up off the ball when you just didn't have to give it up for whatever mm -hmm. reason, sliding up the field or not getting in or whatever. Um, a lot of that you, you, you drill and you work on and it's that fluency of this, you know, nonstop new roles. But part of it too is, is innate, just like you said, um, some, some people are just better at that than others. How do you evaluate that? Um, I call it instinct or IQ, you know, and I'm writing things down. Like certain guys just have a sense of what's going on in the game and they understand their role within it. Like if you're a defender, uh, you should generally never be sliding up the field, leaving a guy at two yards to go play a guy at 12. Yeah. And certain guys just understand that. Mm -hmm. And those are the ones that are more instinctive. And, you know, you don't want to pigeonhole people, but right. by and large, if you've got a really good cover guy who is not as instinctive, that's okay. Mm -hmm. um, whereas if you have a really instinctive guy who's vocal and also has a good stick, that's a great number three, you know? Uh, and, and so that guy, and he's, you know, as a vocal guy, he can kind of lead your defense. And if he isn't as athletic as the, as the other guys, there's still real value there, you know? Uh, and so you're, 
I'm not going to recruit a guy that can't cover. Yeah. We can't do that. You know, we need him to be able to cover somebody. We can't be sliding to all our defensemen. But most attack groups that we're playing against don't have three perimeter dodgers. So as long as that third guy who has yeah. a high IQ has decent coverability, then I think we're going to be in pretty good shape. And there's real value in recruiting that IQ piece of it. Because at the end of the day, like, you tend to lose games because you make mental mistakes more often than you can't cover somebody. Right. Exactly. And, you know, you can usually slide to people if you have to. I mean, obviously, you got to be able to cover somebody you can't get blown by. Right. Um, but, you know, when you think about off the ball versus on the ball, it's funny because everybody says the same thing, like feet, feet, yeah. feet, 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 and then who plays? Right. Smartest right. guys. Right. Exactly. You know, that's, that's kind of the funny because you just can't have somebody out there that's not smart. And then the stick skill piece is huge, too. I mean, you know, I think that, you know, it's, it's sad where so many kids, you know, this is just an opinion, but when, when I look at youth kids, playing with full length poles yep. and being pulled into being, you might as well be a cone you yeah. know, out there uh, on your youth practice. And um, you don't, you know, you don't really handle the ball because all you're doing is playing defense. And yep. really what you need to be is an offensive player yeah. um, as a defensive, as a defenseman. Couldn't agree more. I think U.S. lacrosse or somebody should say long six are not allowed until seventh grade or something like that. Totally agree. Like, these kids run around like, you know, like our best stick handling defense we've had in my time at Penn all played short stick until middle school. Yeah. I believe it. Yeah. It's like, it's nuts because you are. I mean, you, you have this false crutch where you don't have to move your feet when you're, when you're younger right. and you don't handle the ball as well. And like, the little quick guy doesn't want anything, any part of the big guy. No. Because right? he's just going to whack you. And so, like, it's like this false crutch of just no one's beating me, you know, but no one's dodging you right now. Right. You're and all afraid to be. Enough, yeah. You get ugly. Yeah, I agree. You know, I, I'm a huge believer in box across. I'm going to ask you about that in a second. But when I was coaching high school, we would play a lot of box in, in, the, in the off season. But then when we were starting to prepare for the season, you know, you don't really want to go with long poles in a box. No. Um, but I wanted to try to get this happy medium. So we started using schlongs. <laughs> They're basically like up to about your sternum. <laughs> and, and the guys could play both ways. So they could play in an offensive drill. You could play four on four or five on five half court hoop yeah. style. And Darren Muller, right? Darren Muller? It was Darren Muller style. Yeah. And, and you said so you could still V hold somebody. You could still yeah, use yeah. leverage of your stick. That's cool. Um, and, but it was funny because some of those guys actually like never went back to a full length. Really? And, yeah, I can see that. Just because they, they actually loved having it. And, um, yeah, so much easier to handle the ball, right? Oh, they got so much more skilled so fast, and it yeah. just didn't kill your drills. Yeah. Um, like let's, um, let's talk a little bit about Canadians and box across. I mean, I know you guys uh, have a co former Coquitlam Adenac. Yeah. Um, lefty transition midi on your team. Um, he was a good goal scorer. I remember watching him when my, when my yeah. son was playing intermediate. And I was yeah, like, he's up there, yeah. I was like, you're going nowhere? I was like – I think I called you or, or I called Pat. I can't remember. I think, yeah. I think you called Pat. Then yeah, we brought Pat. him. This kid, McKillrick, is really athletic, good player, great student. You guys should take a look at him. Yeah, he's a stud. Yeah, Absolute stud. Plays more defense than offense for us, but very skilled, high IQ kid, good athlete, great student. Uh, he's he's a stud. So thank you for that. He was, he was a power play guy on the 20, in the 2017 Minto Cup. I mean, well, honestly, the only reason that he didn't play offense for us is we just needed guys on defense yeah. three years ago. Yeah. It was really, and then he just kind of, he was so good at it yeah. that like, you know, Casey didn't want to give him up, which I get, but he could easily play man up for us as well as man down. For sure. 
But mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, I don't know. It's, it, it's, it's like uh, hard to find, you know, the right fit, you know, in general at your school because you need yeah. such great students and I'm sure you're always looking. But what's your take on Canadians um, in the recruiting process and, and how do they fit into your, your sort of two-man game concepts? Yeah, I mean, for us, our criteria are pretty high, like you said. You got to be a good student and we're trying to recruit really good players so we can win. Um, so our criteria is very simple. Good student, good player, good kid. And if they're from Texas or Canada or wherever, like we look everywhere. Mm -hmm. you know? uh, and so it's not like we play a certain way where we can't, we don't want, you know, box style players or Canadians, yeah. or we need a ton of them. You know, we're, we're pretty flexible. Uh, and so for us, recruiting is very important. We're going to recruit the best players we can that are good fits for Penn. And yeah. then we'll adjust our, our style around them a little bit on offense and defense. You know, what we did on offense last year will be different than what we do this year. So Matt McKillick's a great example. He's just a good kid and a good player and a good student. Yep. We came here and found a role for him. Um, and so we'll continue to recruit Canadians. We go up there all the time. We watch the Eds play and stuff. Yep. Um, and, and so they're so skilled, like, and, which is ironic that Matt plays defense for us. It's still, I still could scratch my head because he, I'm sure, could have scored 30 goals for us last year. But it's probably more valuable doing what he does on defense because he actually is so intelligent and so athletic. So he's yep. both those things we were talking about. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and we play a, we don't do box here, but we do a lot of small sided stuff because we're trying to develop those same skills yep. that those guys come in here with, um, you know, in spades from, from Canada. So um, we do a lot of different things. Um, but at the end of the day, like we're trying to score goals. Yep. And the, the, the box players are so good at that, that there's a premium on them in the recruiting, you know, uh, and the way they do it is is different from every guy you know they, they're obviously very good at the two-man game and the picks and defending picks even like matt is is fantastic at defending them um so for us it's not necessarily we're recruiting them to play two-man games we're recruiting them because they can help us win and score goals and, and different yeah. like that so how, how much two-man game do you guys play and do you like recruit it or do you just develop it or both um I would say both. We didn't do a ton last year. Two years ago, we did a lot more. Mm -hmm. um, and we found that we would do some behind the cage, but more often than not, we had three middies and we won the matchups more often than not. Yep. So it would depend on who we're playing against and, and what we're trying to do. Um, we have it in where, you know, we can do a bunch of two-man stuff in the elbows or behind or different places. Um, but because we were, you know, Sam Hanley, for instance, was generally winning his matchup with a pole last year. And then the other two guys would, would win their short stick matchups. And Simon Mathias, you know, uh, more often than not, could at least hold his own against the number one. And this kid, sure, Sean Mully. Sure. Like, we just we had a lot of, like, yeah. pretty athletic guys. Um, so we did less. We scored of a lot of goals, yeah. Yeah, we scored a lot of goals. But, like, for, for us, it tends to be uh, kind of the second phase of it. If we don't run by somebody, then we'll do it with a pick. Um, just because of the spacing of it, you know? Yeah. Sometimes I wonder – um, whether, um, you know, because if you have to slide to a pick situation, mm -hmm. you've got three covering four, exactly. you to slide to an isolation, you've got four yes. covering five. How do you think that factors in from an analytics perspective? Well, I think analytically, um, there's a slight risk in setting the pick that either you're going to call for a moving pick or they're going to double team it and you can't get out of it. Um, but I think the risk is worth the reward generally. So I, I'm a I'm, I'm buying long-term on picks mm -hmm. because of what you just said. Um, and I don't know analytically or statistically why, 
But when you're playing offense or defense five on five, like in a sub game or whatever they're doing, it is infinitely easier to score five on five than it is six on six. Mm-hmm. And then you basically take that to a to another level when it's a two man game and you're basically four and three behind it. Once you've drawn a slide to that two man game, then the space is really really favors the offense. So I agree with you completely. I've never analyzed it in terms of yeah. the sheer percentages, but it's it's significant. So back to recruiting, you, you've got, you're recruiting two-way middies and you're recruiting O middies. Are you recruiting yeah. defensive-oriented guys too, or are they sort of fit in the category of two-way? Um, well, we definitely want to bring in guys that can play defense. Now, whether they'll play defense or two-way, um, we need really good athletes that can, that can play defense that we hopefully don't have to slide to. Mm-hmm. Um, but we would like to bring in guys that aren't players that can only play defense. Like if they don't have one other thing in their toolkit. Yeah. It's hard to recruit that, right? Yeah, it's really hard. You know? But it's also uh, like you said earlier, it's a mentality. So sometimes you're, you're like, oh, this kid's a great athlete. He can definitely be a two-way guy. And then he stinks at defense because he just, yeah. you know. Yeah, completely, you know. Uh, but we do have kids every year like, all right, that guy can be a, a lockdown short stick for us. Yeah, so huge too, huh? Huge, huge. You know, uh, if you can get – and again, the you know, we're – we're playing a pretty good schedule, so we're not going to go into every game thinking we're going to win every matchup. But your chances of winning are going up if you're sliding less. Do you try to get out on people? Um, at, you know, when you're evaluating, would you rather watch somebody get out on somebody, or like how do you guys play as far as shorties? You get try to get out and get bumps yeah, on one of them. Or? I think it really varies on the on the matchup and the player you're playing. Yeah. You know, certain guys are more comfortable getting long runs at you, yeah. in which case I think you can crowd them a little bit and not let them square you up. Whereas other guys, you know, are just wasting their space and you can sit back and, and wait for them um, and take away some of what they're, they're trying to do. So we don't have a specific, yeah. you know, uh, pickup point. You know, uh, I think it varies based on who we're playing and what the matchup Every is. Time. Yeah. And then so um, on attack, there's, there's kind of like positions within positions, right? You got X guys, you got a lefty, you got off ball guys, you got physical, you know, Dodgers, scat back guys. Yep. You know, you probably recruit all of them, but how do you think about that? Yeah, I agree with you completely. There's a bunch of different guys out there. And again, we're not trying to recruit a certain type of guy to a certain type of offense. We're recruiting the best players we can find that are good kids and good students. And then we'll build the offense around it, so to speak. So I think in an ideal world, you're going to have a couple of guys that are two-handed, big and fast and skilled, and they can shoot and feed. Now, (laughs) good luck. I guess uh, UST might have that, but you know, uh, like that's what we want. And so uh, with each player, we want to bring a guy in that's, that has as many of those things as possible. Now on attack, the skill part and the, the decision-making is really, really important. You need one or two guys that can run by somebody, but you don't always have to have three. Now, you, you, I would rather have a guy that is skilled and smart and doesn't turn the ball over than a guy who can run by people but has four turnovers a game. Like, you don't want that guy running your offense. You know, uh, and so it's, you know, you kind of, I guess pick your poison a little bit uh, for us. I think the skill and IQ thing is really important on attack, non-negotiable. And then as athletic as you can be, mm-hmm. that's what we'd prefer, you know? And how do you recruit it? How do you evaluate it? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, there's a lot of pieces to it. You know, there's a selfless piece, you know, guys that are chiefly concerned with their own shots, like scare you a little bit. Um, guys that see through defenses are really important. You know, you need a quarterback that, and more often than not, the open guy is on the backside of the play. And if you can get it there one pass, it's really hard to stop. Get it in two passes, that's generally the race. 
You know, can you can you recover and, and get back out at 16 or 17 yards instead of 13? Um, and so, you know, we we're looking for all those things, and it's the same thing on offense as it is on defense. But you add the skill part to it. So instead of feet and hips, it's feet, hips, and hands. Mm-hmm. You know, if a guy has feet, hips, and hands, and then he has the IQ, he's probably going to be pretty good. And then when he gets here, we'll try to develop him in different ways and get him a little bigger and stronger and maybe faster. But like that IQ piece is very hard to teach. You're not going to take a guy with a, lot, a low IQ and bring him in and make him a high IQ quarterback point guard. So true. So um, are you liking the new rules? Yeah. Yeah, I think they're great. You know, I think, uh, I mean, the dive thing, I still think we're trying to perfect that or improve that. Uh, I think the shot clock thing worked worked out. The 80 seconds seems a little long. I'm on the rules committee, so I'm not judging them. Um, and I think the the sub box thing was a, was a no brainer and, and drastically improved the transition. Right. What about the new recruiting rules? Uh, I think they're great as as a coach and as a father and parent. Um, I think they're fantastic. And I don't know if it's perfect, like the September one date. Certain people like, certain people don't. But the fact that we have ninth graders that aren't worried about where they're going to school or so much better to, so much better how about so worrying better. about just enjoying it and um getting better you know yeah being a kid I go to the yeah, movies yeah completely. honestly it was like it was sad to see kids being you know distraught because they weren't recruited as a freshman and then yeah. not playing the sport and the whole thing was just out of whack because Ooh. i don't know i remember being like a junior in college in high school and my advice college counselor being like yeah, you should, you're probably going to end up, where'd you want to go to school, Jamie? I was like, I don't know, maybe Brown. They were like, uh, no, URI for you. <laughs> I was like, crap. <laughs> oh, well. And then, you know, that's summer I ended up getting recruited. Who knew? Right. You know, but, yeah. but, um, you know, but, but that's kind of how it should be. You know, it's like, it's fine to be serious about your sport and work at it and get better and all that. But, but, you know, it's, it's sad that, you know, it was sad that, that the fun of it and the spirit of it was kind of lost. And that coaches, I mean, it's so much better for you guys. So much to better. To be able to not have to worry about a, a freshman. Yeah, so much better. We can concentrate on one class and do a good job evaluating them. And the thing that's been the, the I think, most refreshing is in, in the second year of it, especially this year where everybody was starting from square yeah. one, mm-hmm. the, the families and the, and the schools, even the guys at the top of the food chain here, nobody was in a hurry. You know, I, I really didn't hear anybody saying, yeah, I need to make a decision by September 5th. Like people were still pretty practical and, and took their time, visited multiple schools. And, you know, there are a lot of kids off the board already. But I think by and large, the process is much, much healthier. And, and, and I've been impressed with how everybody's handled it. No doubt. And I'll say this. I don't think it's possible to get a great handle on a whole class with how many great players there are, really how many, how many really good prospects there are and how many events there are, right? How many club teams there are. You're not going to get a handle on a whole class with a staff of, you know, three full-time guys and a volunteer working camps um, in, in, in two, in two months. No way. You're not. And so there's so many kids out there, in my opinion, that are not committed right now that coaches are going to be, it's going to be interesting because I feel like the class of 2021 was, the most under-evaluated class ever for that reason, because everyone was kind of looking at 20s and 19s as well, right? And then all of a sudden, last fall, you start looking at the 21s and then this past summer, um, and then into the fall. But now the 22s are going to be the most under-evaluated class because no one's going to be done with, you know, I shouldn't say building, but there's going to be a lot of people still looking at 21s, holding the spot open to go take a look. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And we'll have to figure out the rhythm of this. 
yeah. you know, uh, you know, do we need to go out to more events? We need to go here in this month and go to that different event. And in this month, uh, cause we, we aren't seeing close to everybody. And the way the, the summer circuit is, I, I think there's a, an over concentration on certain events that I think, you know, even I've said it to our staff, like, listen, we can't keep going watching these same kids play right. of, you know, that only there, there's, there's a lot of concentration there, but it's not every single top, whatever kid in the country. It's not all 150 of the top 150 in the country. So we need to go out and find those other kids. Yeah, no doubt. And get them to come to your prospect days. You guys have some. Yep. Yeah, we do. Uh, yeah. At this point we're, we're done until, uh, till June, but we have a, a prospect day in June, a camp in July. And then we have two more in the fall, usually uh, one in September and one in October. So you take those pretty seriously from a recruiting perspective and an evaluation. No doubt. Extremely important. You know, uh, I don't think we've had one in the last six years where we haven't taken a kid from it. You know, uh, we have an indoor camp that we just finished up. Um, that's uh, what's that last weekend. Yeah, 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 exactly. And 140 kids and some pretty good, good talent is probably eight or 10 guys on our roster right now that have gone to that indoor camp at different points. And, and, you know, obviously we're targeting certain kids I mean, it's open to anybody, but we're inviting kids to this knowing that, we like them and, and stuff. So those things have been really, really uh, fruitful for us on the recruiting front, the, the one-day clinics and the, the indoor camp. So, Last question for you. With how many players there are and how hard it is to see everybody, how important is it for, to have a pipeline of people that you can trust their evaluation to give you a heads up on, hey, Murph, check out this kid. He's pretty good. Oh, extremely, extremely, you know, uh, like, I, you know, if I looked at our full roster or even the, the top 22 guys or so that play in, in every game, like I could give you 10 different sources, you know, uh, of how we found out about that kid or where we heard about him. And, and honestly, part of that is an, uh, an athletic evaluation, but part of it is also a kind of a character reference, yeah. which is really important to us. Like, you know, if you, you and I talk about a kid out in Colorado and you like him as a player and we see him, we like him as a player and your family knows him and likes him. That, that carries a lot of weight with us. So mm-hmm. we, we get different leads athletically, but we also try to triangulate uh, our, our information much as we can from a, from a character integrity standpoint too. So that stuff is really important. And it's so much better with the new rules. Now you actually have time to do that. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're in, not in control, but we have a, a yeah. manageable schedule. Yeah. It's going to start, you know, whenever it starts and we're going to see it through until early decision and talk to a bunch of people and yeah. it's much more manageable. We're focused actually on talk to a high school coach about a player. Yeah. Yeah. Huge, yeah. huge, huge. So they've actually awesome. played for that guy. So it's a, it's a much better landscape for recruiting than it was two years ago. All right. Last question. So you look at like, you know, it's a much better landscape, but it's got its challenges, which is trying to really get a handle on, everybody that fast, right? Uh, How much do you think college coaches are going to start using film to watch kids, not just highlight videos. Everybody already does that, but I mean, actual, like actual game film of maybe even high school so that you can get a sense for players, you know, when you're just not going to be able to get out on the road and go see. Uh, I think you're exactly right. Um, It'll be interesting to the point where it's hard to do it, but it seems like you almost have to a little bit. Yeah. And especially if there's a good kid that isn't going to necessarily make his way back East or a lot of this recruiting is like ships passing in the night. 
Yeah. I don't know. Like the, the perfect kid for us could have played on field A and I'm on field C. Yeah. Some random event. Like, I, you know, I don't know. It's a very imperfect science the way it is right now. So I think the more thorough we can be in terms of seeing as many kids as we can in the class of 21 and a class of 22 to the point where I actually, I wouldn't be surprised. And cause you know, the college coaches are talking about how miserable some of these experiences are like going to, you know, event X in November and it's 32 degrees or event Y in July and it's 98 degrees. Like it's just not fun. You know, uh, what's, what's keeping us from just getting some of the, getting film on all this stuff or having on closed circuit TV and doing it that way. Yeah, I mean, there's no question that film is going to answer a lot of questions that your naked eye cannot. And also, at the same time, you just can't judge speed, can't judge certain elements of things. You know? so I think it's a combination, but I, that's why I was wondering, because a lot of times I do like these video assessments of, of players. And um, I, I was like, you know, why not put together, you know, uh, all of your dodges, shots, feeds and you know and off ball movements from a tournament into a nine or ten minute video yeah and all of a sudden you know somebody can actually see the real you yeah you know anybody can come up with a good highlight video right um if you play enough events yeah against craft goals yeah just put your goals in there and get a few stages yeah that's pretty cool (laughs) anyways well murph um so good to catch up with you man um Really enjoyed your thoughtfulness on all of these topics. Best of luck to the Quakers, and um, have an awesome holiday. Uh, thanks, James. Great, uh, great being with you. Great uh, connecting. Have a great uh, holiday yourself, and hopefully we'll see you this spring sometime. Awesome, buddy. Take care. All right. Take care, James. Bye-bye. The Philacrosophy Podcast is brought to you in part by the JM3 Coaches Training Program, now featuring a seven-day free trial period. And here's your host, Jamie Monroe, with more information on how you can get your hands on some of the best lacrosse content out there for free. How's it going, everybody? Thank you so much for tuning in to my podcasts. I've had so much fun doing them. I only wish that I'd started recording my lacrosse conversations like 25 or 30 years ago. Now, if you like these podcasts, you will love the content I've created in the JM3 Coaches Training Programs and the Academies. Whether you're a coach or a player or a parent, there's so much great information for you guys. I've done this content for men's lacrosse and women's lacrosse, for box lacrosse, field lacrosse, youth lacrosse. And the great news is I've created a seven-day free trial. So if you're tired of endlessly searching the internet for great content, just go to www.jm3sports.com slash free trial. And you can get access to all of the content I've created for free for seven days. Trust me, when you take a look at it, you're going to want more. Almost everybody gets hooked. All right, enjoy the rest of the podcast.